0: Oh, good morning, everybody. Um, A special thank you to uh, those of you who've worked hard to make sure we could actually hold the service this morning without the electricity. Um, It's a bit of an adventure. I suppose we're a bit like the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, aren't we? We'll see whose lights go off first during the sermon. might be mine, actually, because this one has not got such a strong battery. You will find inside the green question sheet um, an outline... And it will be helpful, I think, if you have that uh, in front of you, it's on a white piece of paper, A5 size, and uh, that explains, I think, where we're going in the next few minutes. But uh, let's start, as always, by asking for God's help. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. Thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way that he reveals to us your mind and your heart. And so we pray now for minds that are active to receive that truth, for hearts that are open to understand it, and for wills that put it into practice. For the glory of your holy name. Amen. Well, as um, Herbert said, the title of this message is What Jesus Will Do Tomorrow, John 524 to 30. Now, every schoolboy knows that the day that the end of term report arrives is a day of reckoning. Uh, when I was at school, uh, the report would usually arrive two or three days into the school holidays by post. And at the end of my very first term, I remember my parents opening the report at the breakfast table and reading the rather disturbing words, this boy needs an injection of attention. (laughs) Now, uh, the teacher who wrote those words was actually a very quiet and rather mild-mannered fellow. And uh, for him to say it like that meant that my attention deficit must have been extremely serious. Uh, As you can imagine, the atmosphere in the family home was rather strained for several days afterwards. Now, I start with that because it is precisely what we need in our passage this morning. We need an injection of attention. Now, why do I say that? Well in this series we're discovering what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God and uh, the passage from verse 16 to verse 30 in chapter 5 is actually the most important on that subject in the whole of John's book and yet it is a passage on which the church today urgently needs an injection of attention For too long, the Church has been tiptoeing around it, rather wishing it wasn't there. But it is there, and it is absolutely essential to a right understanding of the Christian Gospel. In fact, it's such an important passage that even though it's only 15 verses, we've given two Sunday mornings to it last week and this... Now last week we saw that God the Father has given the most important responsibilities on earth to the Son. That is the responsibility for life and judgment. And in case you weren't with us last week, you need to know that the passage teaches two things about that. Firstly, we discover that the gift of life is given to those who hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, that must be important because Jesus says it three times. Have a look. Verse 24. Jesus says, Whoever hears my word has eternal life. Verse 25. Almost the same thing. He says, The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then again in verse 28, where Jesus talks about what's going to happen when he returns, and he says, all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Now that lies right at the very heart of everything that we stand for here at St Barnabas. It's why we give so much time in our services to studying the Bible. We want people to come and hear what Jesus has to say so that Jesus can wake them up from spiritual death and they can begin to enjoy eternal life. But the point, you see, is that I can't do that. You can't do that. Only Jesus can do it. So that's the very first thing that we learned last week. The gift of life is given to those who hear the voice of the Son of God. But then secondly, this passage tells us that life and judgment are opposite ends of a pole. In other words, if Jesus gives me life, it means that I'm not going to be judged. But if he judges me, It means that I'm not going to get life. Those two things are opposites. So please notice that on the lips of Jesus, judgment is not the neutral word that it is in our culture. Uh, If I have to go to court in Cape Town and stand before the judge, well, there's a sporting chance I might get let off. But in John's Gospel, judgment is not neutral. It means the same thing as condemnation or death. Now that, of course, is where all the problems start. Because for most people, the uh, Bible's teaching on judgment is indigestible. They're either frightened by it, or they dismiss it as a fiction invented by the church as a means of imposing the church's agenda on the world. And for those reasons, many churches today have stopped talking about it because, according to them, it's bad for business. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Because this passage says that the doctrine of judgment is certainly not a fiction... And it's important for all Christians for at least four reasons. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning discovering what those reasons are and what they mean for us today. And the first reason is this, that the Bible's teaching on judgment is a source of immense comfort, verses 24 to 27. Now, you weren't expecting me to say that, were you? But in verse 25, please look at it, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, there's an important little detail in the text that isn't immediately obvious in the New International Version, which you have in front of you. A more accurate translation is the English Standard Version, which says, an hour is coming rather than a time is coming. Now that, I think, is an important clue, because we've already discovered in John's Gospel that whenever Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. So what Jesus is saying in verse 25 is that the gift of eternal life is available to those who hear his voice because of what he'll do in his hour. So with that in mind, I think the really important question must be what does it mean to hear the voice of the Son of God? That must be the most important question. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist. Uh, He wrote numerous books about his experiences under the communist regime in the former Soviet Union. And uh, in one of them, he talks about what life was like in the concentration camps and how he kept himself alive in the face of the most appalling cruelty and torture. And he says that what kept him going was that he used to imagine what he would do to the camp guards if he ever managed to get free. And uh, he says that he pictured himself being able to sort of push these men into a burning pit and watch them die a slow, agonising death. But then one day, of course, he realised that he was becoming just like the guards he was seeking to destroy – And so he goes on to say that gradually he began to understand that the line dividing good and evil is not a line that divides people into two groups. Rather, the line dividing good and evil runs right through every human heart. There's good and evil in every one of us. Now, you see, the point is that the minute I realise that and agree that I deserve to be thrown into the pit is actually the minute that I'm saved from it. That is what it means to hear the voice of the Son of God. Jesus shows me that I deserve only condemnation and judgement in such a way that I really, really believe it. But in the same moment, I also understand that because of Jesus' hour, I can be saved. And so, of course, I give my life to him. That is the Christian Gospel. And because of the Gospel, the Day of Judgment no longer holds any terrors for me. Why? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 27. Talking about himself, Jesus says, And the Father has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now, I guess many of you know that um, Jesus often talked about himself as the Son of Man and it's a title that first appears in one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament uh, if you've been at st barnabas for more than 7 years you don't need to look it up but everybody else keep one finger in john 5 and turn back to daniel 7 on page 622 daniel 7 page 622 verse 13 While you're turning there, let me remind you that Daniel was a truly faithful servant of God at a time when the people of God were in exile and everything looked pretty hopeless. But through Daniel, God assured them that he hadn't forgotten them, that he would keep all of his promises to Israel. Now, how was he going to do that? Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now bring that forward into what we're reading in John 5 and the extraordinary message of John 5 is that the Son of God who took the punishment for my sin on the cross 2,000 years ago is also the Son of Man, who is today on the throne of the universe and who has more power and more authority than anybody else. Now, surely, that's a huge comfort, isn't it? I mean, I know that I deserve to be punished. But you see, if Jesus is the judge, then he knows better than anybody else that the penalty for my sin has already been paid. So how do I have anything else to fear? Because every time I think of the day of judgment, it reminds me of what Jesus has done on my behalf and instead of being frightened, I'm wonderfully comforted. So that, you see, is the first reason why Christians need to embrace the Bible's teaching about judgment. It is a source of immense comfort. Well, please come back to John 5 if you haven't done already, because secondly, the Bible's teaching about judgment is our motive for righteous living. Verses 28 and 29. Now, at first sight, there appears to be a contradiction between what Jesus says in verse 24... And what he says a little bit later in verse 29. Have a look at it. In verse 24, he tells us that eternal life comes by faith. What does he say? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, salvation by faith. But then in verse 29 where he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, Jesus says, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. That sounds like salvation by works, doesn't it? Is it a contradiction? No, it's not. The point is, you see, That our deeds, our behavior, our conduct reveal the true state of our heart. And over time, the inner reality will be absolutely obvious. A bit later on in this gospel, in uh, chapter 15, there's a place where Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches, If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. What an absolutely brilliant illustration. Think about it. The fruit on the tree, you see, does not give the tree life, does it? No, rather, the fruit on the tree proves that the tree is actually alive. If you like, the fruit is the visible sign of a reality that is otherwise invisible. So, when Jesus talks about a judgment based on works, he's saying that the works, the deeds, the behaviour, the lifestyle, are the sign of whether a person really has received the gift of eternal life or not. Now, before we go any further, let's be absolutely clear that the New Testament talks about two different judgments. So, there is a judgment of unbelievers for which there is only one outcome. Uh, In this passage, Jesus describes it as condemnation, and I'll say more about that in a moment. But the New Testament also talks about the judgment of believers. And the interesting thing is that both of these judgments are based on how we've lived our lives. So, for example, uh, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Corinth, he says this, We, that is Christians, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done whilst in the body, whether good or bad. If you're taking notes, that's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Now, friends, that means at least two things for us here this morning. The first is that growth matters. Uh, If you go to one of the many fruit-growing areas in the Cape and you speak to a farmer he will tell you that one of the key things that he looks for in his crop is that the fruit is growing. If the fruit isn't growing, it's a sign that something's wrong with the tree. In exactly the same way, the evidence that you and I are alive spiritually, that we really are born again, is that we are growing spiritually. So, can I ask you, are you bearing much fruit? Are you more loving, more joyful, more patient, more kind, more self controlled than you were a year ago? Some of you know, I'm sure, that in one of his letters, the Apostle Paul describes nine different aspects. Of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, encourage me that you're still awake. Tell me what they are, somebody. What are they? Come on. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Thank you very much indeed. Now, you see, the thing is, if the Holy Spirit is living within us, these nine qualities will be evident in our lives in some way. But of course the thing is that only the Lord Jesus has ever demonstrated all of them perfectly. So think with me for just a minute about how that helps us grow as Christian people. If you look back in your mind's eye over your life over the past year, and the truth is that instead of being more patient you are less patient than you were 12 months ago. The reason is that you have forgotten how patient Jesus has been with you by not giving you the things that you deserve and instead giving you many, many wonderful things you actually don't deserve. In other words, the reason for your impatience is that at some level you are not believing the gospel. So the key to growing as a Christian, to living a fruitful life, is to ask the Lord Jesus to show you all over again how he's demonstrated each one of those nine qualities in his dealings with you. Because our growth matters. Then the second practical application is that Christianity is amazingly practical. You know, right from the very beginning, Christianity was never sort of the academic study of ancient documents. It was never that. Let's remind ourselves of it. Keep one finger in John. Turn to James 2, page 860. Letter of James, chapter 2, page 860. Now James, of course, was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus and uh, in later life he became head of the church in Jerusalem. So what we're about to read here are the words of a highly respected church leader who knew the Lord Jesus practically better than anybody else. What does he consider to be the sign of a real Christian Uh, Chapter 2, verse 14, are we all there? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Not there. Now that is very practical, isn't it? And it means that the way that we live our lives really matters. Because all of us are, are living our lives moment by moment before the watching gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not looking to trip us up, but he is looking to see how we respond to the opportunities that he gives us to show other people the same love and the same kindness that he has shown to us. So the Bible's teaching on judgment is our motive for righteous. Living Well, come back to John's Gospel because thirdly, the Bible's teaching on judgment frees us from all bitterness and anxiety, verse 30. One of the things I think we all wrestle with is the fact that this world is often so desperately unjust and desperately unfair. This week I was uh, reading a survey published by an organisation called Transparency International. They are an anti-corruption agency. And what they do is they conduct an annual survey across Africa asking people about their personal experience of corruption. We all know what a terrible burden it is, don't we? That it costs billions. Now the question is, Is it just a handful of rogues at the top of the food chain, as it were, who are getting away with it, or is it rather more broad-based? Transparency International estimate that in the last 12 months, 75 million people in sub-Saharan Africa paid a bribe, either to escape prosecution in the courts or to get access to the basic services they need in order to survive. Of course, there's been plenty of that, hasn't there, here in South Africa? 75 million people. Now, Christians, of course, can become uh, very depressed about that sort of thing. And it's one of the reasons why we need to get the Bible's teaching on judgment crystal clear in our thinking, So look with me at what Jesus says in verse 30. Talking about the authority that he will exercise on the day of judgment, he says this, By myself I can do nothing, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. Now we do need the words of Jesus here because they remind us, you see, That while we find the injustice all around us almost unbearable at times, there is going to be justice beyond the grave, and it will be just. Jesus himself tells us it will be so. Can I suggest that changes everything? Because it assures me that despite all appearances to the contrary, God's universe is just and it is fair. On the reverse of your green question sheet, I've given you a quotation by a man called Wayne Grudem. Some of you will be familiar with him and will probably own a copy of his marvellous book, even if only as a bit of a doorstop. But he is a wonderfully clear teacher on the essential truths of the Christian faith. Listen to what he says. The fact that there will be a final judgment assures us that ultimately God's universe is fair. For God is in control and he keeps accurate records and renders just judgment. When the picture of a final judgment mentions the fact that books were opened, Revelation 20, it reminds us that a permanent and accurate record of all our deeds has been kept by God and ultimately all accounts will be settled and all will be made right. I wonder if you can see how very liberating that is when other people hurt us because you see the judgement of the last day will be perfectly just because that is true you and I know that every wrong that has ever been committed will be paid for. Because either the person who has wronged us will turn to Christ, in which case the wrong will have been paid for at the cross, just like my wrongs and your wrongs have been, or it will be paid for on the day of judgment. So that means, doesn't it, that we can let go of bitterness and anxiety. Some of you might be familiar with the ministry of Corrie ten Boom. Uh, During the Nazi Holocaust, she and her family used to hide Jews in their attic. And uh, Corrie and her sister ended up in Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister, Betsy, died a slow and agonising death. After the war, uh, Corrie became a, a marvellous evangelist and after one of her talks, she found herself face to face with one of the guards from Ravensbrook. Uh, he said he'd become a Christian and holding out his hand, he asked her for forgiveness. She takes up the story in her own words. Quote, I stood there and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? But as I froze, I remembered that the message that God forgives has a prior condition. That we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their sins, says Jesus... Then neither will your Father in heaven forgive your sins. And yet still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, it is an act of the will. And the will can function independently of the temperature of the heart. So I prayed, asking Jesus for help. And I lifted my hand to clasp his. And as I did so, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, it raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart, she says, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realised it was not my love. I had tried. I did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. Friends, the Day of Judgment is telling us that we must leave vengeance and retribution in the hands of Almighty God. And our duty is to follow the example of Christ and forgive those who've hurt us, trusting that God will deal with them according to his perfect justice. And that's why we say that the Bible's teaching on judgment frees the Christian from bitterness and from anxiety. Well, lastly, the Bible's teaching on judgment gives urgency to our evangelism. I suppose that's obvious. You would expect me to say that. But a moment ago I said we would think a little bit more carefully about the judgment of unbelievers... Because you see, in our passage, Jesus is extremely clear that there are only two possibilities facing every human being. In the language of verse 24, each one of us will either enjoy eternal life or be condemned. There is no third option. If you think there's a third option, please won't you come and tell me about it afterwards. But what does it actually mean to be condemned? What does the Bible mean by that? Many people struggle with the idea and have come up with all kinds of imaginative ways around the problem. But the one thing that all their theories have in common is that they ignore the plain teaching of Holy Scripture. So as we close, I would like to ask you one last time please to turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 on page 839. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 page 839. Now Paul here is writing to a church that has suffered terrible persecution Of course that is increasingly common today and I know that some of you know far more about it than I do. But what is God going to do with everyone who refuses his free offer of forgiveness in the Gospel? Come with me to verse 6. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. So according to verse 9, the punishment of the last day means two things, doesn't it? It means everlasting destruction with no reprieve and it means being permanently separated from God and from everything good. Now, I defy anybody here this morning to read verse 9 and think about a friend or a family member who is living apart from Jesus Christ and not feel a chill go down your spine. If you were with us last week, you'll remember we said then that on the day of judgment, Jesus actually will do no more than simply confirm the decision that people have made about Jesus in this life. And so because the testimony of scripture about what it means to be condemned is so terrifying, it surely means there is a real urgency here, doesn't it? We've got to take every opportunity to make sure that our friends and our family hear the gospel, that they understand it and that we plead with them to take it with the utmost seriousness. Well, let's be quiet for a moment and you can make your own personal response to Jesus.